You are listening to the Green Majority Podcast, uh, produced at CIUT each and every week. Uh, we had a, a, a bit of a, a jump around show uh, today, partially because I was surprised and didn't realize until the last minute Stefan wouldn't be in. Uh, but Alex, uh, our tech, uh, jumps in and admirably helps me get through the show. We have some great clips to play for you. Uh, so look tuned to that. And we have a really great bonus show with a, uh, a potentially, I hope, a new volunteer who came in as well. You'll meet her later in the show as well. Uh, as usual, just want to remind folks, if you appreciate what we do and you'd like uh, uh, more people, you think more people should be hearing uh, what we have to say, uh, you can uh, become a member of the Green Majority at greenmajority.ca or go directly to the source and jump right in at patron.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash greenmajority, which is where you can sign up and be a member. You only have to sign up for a minimum of $1 a month. So any amount would be appreciated. If you got a spare buck in your pocket, please go there and help us out. Other than that, enjoy the show. here on CIUT 89.5 FM. If you're listening live, you missed the intro music, but if you're listening to the podcast, you will hear it. It will be live for you. <laughs> so we're here in studio, and I'm actually just uh, all alone with Alex today, but I think that's good. We don't get enough time to hear from Alex. Alex is going to be jumping in uh, here and again. Why don't you go ahead and say hello? Hello. <laughs> Thank you so much for... Uh, for uh, letting me bounce things off you because you know anyone who knows me personally alex knows that i could in fact with little trouble talk to myself for an hour uh but it's a little awkward for the listener so thank you for joining me i'm right here darren i'm listening (laughs) bounce away so uh what we're gonna do today uh so stefan's away and unfortunately uh ma is away and uh both deirdre and sabina uh are both uh off on summer um internships of some type unfortunately Deirdre is going to be gone for quite some time Sabina we uh, will hopefully with fingers crossed we'll be getting back uh, in a few months uh, and uh, of course Stefan will be back next week so what we're going to do I'm just going to let you know what we're going to do with the show today uh, I've got a few uh, local news items here as well we'll get into in just a minute talking about uh, Kinder Morgan again one of my least favorite slash favorite simultaneous topics mm-hmm. uh, and that's all about pipelines uh, we're going to do a little bit about natural uh, liquid natural gas as well uh, I've got some good news, and I, I think good news on this show has to be qualified, Alex, um, because we say good news with quite a range of intention. I think this is like legitimate good news today. Which uh, which news is that? That's the uh, we're going to talk about uh, recycled plastic being uh, turned into fuel for for ship turbines. Yeah, that that article is really really cool, and I love I love new technology uh, and innovation like that. So I'm excited to to learn more. Yeah, I'm I'm a bit of a technophile myself as well, as which currently uh, c- consistently comes into conflict with my environmentalism. But there we go. We all have some form of cognitive dissonance at some point. <laughs> uh, so we're also going to mention a little bit about uh, ride sharing. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about climate models, not just new climate models, because I think anyone that listened to this show is is well beyond uh, most likely uh, you know got the message like ten years ago that this thing's real. What we're going to be talking about it is that uh, is is an analysis. So we we've mentioned before, and, and many people talk about 
with the 97% consensus. This is a number that comes up consistently. Uh, and so what's done here, the study is not about, well, it is about climate models, but also what they did was they also analyzed. Um, so what about this 3%? What are, what are they publishing? What are they saying? How is there still 3%? Uh, you won't be surprised that it's nonsense. But we're going to talk a little bit about what's sort of nonsense and really just how pathetic uh, the holdouts are as far as that. Uh, we will hopefully also be getting to some solar road stories. And then the we're, that'll be spaced out between uh, immediately now and just a minute and then probably at the end of the show. In the middle of the show, I've got a couple of clips. We have a, uh, a, a couple of clips from the DNC climate rally. Uh, there was a large climate uh, section at the Democratic National Convention with just concluded, I believe, yesterday. Uh, and there was a there was an uh, there's an hour of footage from this uh, uh, protest, if you will, this action, if you will, um, with a number of uh, very big name speakers. We're obviously not going to listen to the whole hour, but I pulled out a couple of clips that I thought were really powerful, really spoke to me personally. But there's there's a full hour up here, and I, I thought it was all very very good. Part of it I had to cut out just because some of the speakers uh, cursed uh, a whole bunch, and I I wasn't planning on actually playing the clip today. It was a bit of a last minute thing. Uh, So I didn't have time to edit it out. So uh, definitely worth going back and linking to that. We'll, of course, link to that as well. So a wide variety of content for you today. But without further ado, let's get into our first news headline. So the first thing on the show today is uh, that the Trudeau government uh, is uh, claiming there's no conflict of interest uh, when it comes to appointing uh, a a former uh, Tassawayan First Nation chief, Kim Baird. Uh, from a review panel of the Kinder Morgan Trans Man uh, Trans Mountain uh, expansion project, uh, because of her close ties, uh, and another name, uh, a name that's come up on this show before as well. The uh, uh, trans, uh, Kinder Morgan is a Texas-based company, but it's a Canadian chapter. President is Ian Anderson. Uh, the Green Majority team uh, put together a fun video uh, that we thought was informative and also appropriately mocking of Ian Anderson about a year and a half ago, which promptly got two thousand views in like three days, which was really fun. That was the nice the highest amount of views in the shortest amount of time we've ever had for any of our video content. Uh, So I'm going to link to that as well, just because, you know, it's I never get tired of making fun of that buffoon. Uh, But this is very serious. So what we've got uh, essentially is uh, somebody who was uh, brought in to uh, essentially uh, discuss, uh, be part of a board to sort of uh, work through some understandings between the oil companies and the natural gas companies like Kinder Morgan uh, and indigenous communities. And over time, uh, what happened was that uh, Miss Baird uh, ended up becoming a registered lobbyist and working on a number of projects. So, uh, you know, I think it would be unfair, Alex, to um, go really over the top with this and say that she like betrayed her people or anything like that. It's, it's nothing like that. But I mean, what we have is somebody who is, you know, brought in to work with this company, uh, apparently got along with the company, and that there's not even necessarily anything wrong with that. Um, but sort of officially decided, I am now going to be representing uh the oil and gas sector uh and i I think what i think it is fair uh maybe you tell me what you think um i think it is fair to say that at that point you've relinquished you you can't officially sort of be you you can't be neutral and then sort of also officially represent two sides of an issue um so i i I struggle to see the government's argument here what's your initial impact on that do you think do you think it's unfair to say that she can no longer represent first nations issues because she's officially robert uh registered to lobby on behalf of oil and gas um i would i would say those are a little bit uh mutually exclusive she can still represent first nations issues because she is a member of of the first nations community and she was even a chief at one point um but she does seem she does seem to be very closely tied or 
at least has been closely tied to this company in the past, which um, I, I think the matter is not necessarily whether she can adequately represent First Nations issues. It's more whether she can be impartial in this particular review. And and in my opinion, any any possible conflict of interest is grounds for dismissal and just find, find somebody else. There's a, a really good quote in the article uh, by... Uh, the mayor of Burnaby, which is one of the communities that would be affected by the um, by the pipeline, it and should also be mentioned. He's been incredibly outspoken against oil and gas too. He's been okay. really leading the charge. Um, I, it's uh, the quote is: I think there were many great Canadians who could have been appointed to this position, and many people from the First Nations community who could have served on that panel, who had a far more objective relationship with Kinder Morgan. So, I, I mean, why they chose somebody who? has worked with Kinder Morgan versus any any of the other possible candidates uh, yeah. is beyond me. There, there's, there's sort of two issues here. And the, and the first one, I think, to, to be fair, and, and of course, we do get email from people who sort of are, you know, we're, we're syndicated on, on stations all across the country, and uh, we're in, on some American stations as well. So, I mean, it's not like every person listening to our, to our broadcast is necessarily on board with everything or necessarily anything that, that we say on this program. Uh, so it should be, it, it, for those who may be, you know, shaking their fists at their, at their radio or, or MP3 player right now, uh, yes, it, it is important to mention that, of course, there are First Nations, uh, both in Canada and, uh, you know, Indigenous people elsewhere who have agreed to participate and and you know we're going to get some jobs out of this and and that's fine and that's up to that's their decision right so and and so based on that point it cannot be said that it's inherently uh, a conflict to represent both you know first nations interests and oil and gas that being said as you pointed out um the first nation upon or the many of the first nations or uh, I'm, I'm not super informed on um uh, the the intricate details of this is a, a single uh, group or if there's multiple groups uh, involved in these negotiations but yeah, I mean, when you when you're saying when the group that you you know for the with that you formerly would have associated yourself with officially and by heritage do still associate yourself with their leadership, their current leadership is saying we're not interested. Uh, I think that's when you get to say, okay, you no longer you can no longer be impartial because you're going at you're actively your opinions are actively against the the wishes of the people that that you theoretically would be representing on that side so the the really important other thing as well here to to mention is that um <laughs> the the idea of sort of a lot of these lobbyists is to sort of get people on board with stuff and i and i just i really struggle to see how um you could you could sort of possibly be objective about this um, when you're sort of put on the put on the payroll of Kinder Morgan, and then the government sort of gives you the green light. That all that seems to imply sort of a certain impartiality, but it, it, you're fighting against your own your own people's wishes in that case. And I, I just don't I don't know. I, I sort of lost my thought there. I apologize, but I just I, it fi- it seems so. It, it seems incredibly uncomfortable for me. I think is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and you're right. And and the mayor of BC was absolutely right to to say that there there was. T- it's not like this was the only person. Uh, okay, sorry, I recaptured my thought there. What the the point was is that this is actually an ongoing problem, Alex. This is something that happens consistently, which is that uh, frequently what people's arguments are. Um, is that people will say, okay, well, you complain about you know the representatives, but the fact 
fact is there's no, you know there's only so many experts right and so this is what people will say when uh, people complain about lobbyist access to government they'll say well okay well you, you know you spend hundreds of hours listening to so and so representative from Kinder Morgan that you know implies co- uh, a collaboration as opposed to a, a consultation and the government's response and I think there's a there's a peanut of truth in here and, and I'll, I'll want to know what you'll think about this this part of it as well um, is that well okay well most of the people who we need to talk to someone who has expertise at least as part of this discussion and almost by definition all the people or most of the people who are going to have expertise in this areas are people who have worked for these companies and so what we'll what we'll hear is there isn't a better option like everybody we could go if we go to someone that you'd be happy with they wouldn't be qualified i think would be the response um and that doesn't that doesn't sit with me um for the reason that you were just saying which is there are lots of other people like you just because you were ever employed by a pipeline company doesn't mean your opinion doesn't matter uh or that you that you're inherently corrupt but i think the key phrasing here and i think is the one that that people were picking up on and and the mayor picked up on and, and you picked up on as well was it's almost not about actual uh, bias. It's about the perception of bias. And so this demonstrates to me, even if it was done in good faith, extremely poor judgment on the part of the liberal government, at best, um, because of that obvious appearance of corruption. And it just seems to me that that what's most likely true, I don't I don't take a conspiratorial tone, a conspiratorial tone on everything. Um, it seems to me that this was just really poorly thought through mm-hmm. and that the, the I, I don't think this was some of, okay, we'll just put someone in there who agrees with what we ultimately want. And I, I honestly don't believe that in this case. Right. I'm actually, and this might be worse though, uh, chalk this up to incompetence. Uh, right. I just really think they didn't think about it because at the end of the day, I mean, largely this government has been very interested in, um, not so much doing an about face on our oil and gas. It's doing a much friendlier, smilier teddy bear Christmas version of the PR for the campaign. And I don't see much actual policy change. I see a tone change. Uh, what's been your feeling? Well, I would be curious to see who else is on the panel. Uh, the, the article doesn't get a whole, whole lot into that. And, uh, and it would just be, it would be interesting to see if you've got, all people with experience working for uh, oil and gas companies, if you've got somebody who has the opposite bias and is, uh, is an environmentalist, uh, scientist, somebody who's going ar- to oppose uh, somebody coming from the perspective that a pipeline should be pushed through, um, or, or, yeah, just what, what the rest of the, of the panel is made up of. Maybe, maybe it makes sense to have somebody who biases one way as long as they're balanced out by somebody who biases the other way so that you can have a more of a an argument going on and and really like uh get get all of the facts from both sides facts and and stories from both sides uh presented um and then and then have the group be able to make a a decision based on that yeah, I think I think I, I think I have to agree, and you've helped me come to my you've helped me conclude my opinion on this. I think, which is that it's yeah, it's it's not about it's not about bias; it's about the perception of bias. And I think that this demonstrates simply poor judgment and lack of planning on behalf of the government, rather, rather than uh, nefarious, evil, secret plans. Uh, and yeah, I think that it would have been um, you know maybe uh, maybe Miss um, Baird is in fact the best qualified person. Uh, but if that's the case, because of the perception of bias, uh, there should have been yes, there should have been a a high profile counterpoint put on that panel to say 
you know, you know, we are accurately accurately representing all sides. What I'm concerned about, and what I think that many of the people are concerned about, and 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 uh, and didn't express it this way, and and maybe wouldn't express it this way, but I'll express it this way, was concern about uh, them, you know, being able to say, oh, look, we have a First Nations person on the panel, therefore this is unbiased by definition because she's First Nations, and if that's what they're doing, then they're dead wrong. Right. Uh, and and I think that is a legitimate thing to get upset about. Um, but yeah, I think we'll we'll have to wait and see uh, a little bit on this, and and uh, it does seem like people are paying attention uh, to it. But yeah, I mean, uh, you, it's it certainly don't uh, you know I've been saying this since before the election, but we certainly can't drop our guard uh, with this Trudeau government as far as the oil and gas stuff. At, at the very least, they seem to be more receptive to pressure. So keep it on up. We got to keep sharing these stories. Got to keep them on point and just let them know, hey, we're paying attention. So you're going to have to think this stuff through, even if it is incompetence uh, and not nefarious uh, purposes. Uh, we're paying attention. You better try a little bit harder because you're going to bite your hand off every time you do something stupid. <laughs> uh, so why don't we move on? Um, there's a little bit more. So why don't uh, I'm just going to do the Husky thing and then maybe we'll we'll take our first break here. Uh, and come back to some of the uh, middle section. We'll do some of the uh, climate rally DNC stuff. So the second thing I wanted to get to is also about pipelines. Uh, In this case, it's a report from the National Observer, also, I should say, from the National Observer, uh, talking about a public inquiry after uh, a pipeline whistleblower calling for a public inquiry after Husky Energy uh, uh, alters an oil spill report. So just very quickly, um, the essentially what happened was there was a report given on a uh, particular spill in... uh, uh, oh, I'm, I'm missing here. I'll come North back to Saskatchewan that. River. Thank you. Yes, North yeah. Saskatchewan River. And uh, the spill uh, was around 1,572 barrels approximately and was reported uh, originally that the uh, spill had been uh, observed for about 14 hours before uh, responding to the disaster and informing local authorities. Uh, however, on Thursday, it submitted a new report saying that they had uh, discovered it within 30 minutes uh, before uh, uh, notifying the provincial regulator. Now, we're talking about a difference of 13 uh, hours and, and 30 minutes, and some people may say, okay, well, how much difference could that make? And, and to them, I say a lot. Uh, 13 hours of cleanup effort is a massive amount of cleanup efforts for start. So that's part of it. Uh, there's sort of So there's sort of three things I want to highlight here. One of them uh, is the apparently open door policy to you know editing reports that we have it seems to be very easy this was this was not flagged by the government this was flagged by a, a whistleblower and uh, and by journalists um, so you know it's sort of one of those cases where I was okay if we caught you once how many to how many other times have you done this of which I would bet all of the money that I have which is not much on the many more times is the answer um, the other thing is the idea around uh, how often these spills happen at all. I mean, you know, so one of the things we keep hearing was, and, and I mean, if you go and, and uh, somebody I know who likes to, uh, who shall remain, remain nameless, but, uh, and I do not approve, I would also like to add, but enjoys harassing oil company CEOs on Twitter, um, you know, who, to frequently respond with all sorts of nonsense about, oh, this is completely safe and you haven't read your reports. And okay, uh, well, the thing is, you know, these stories often get buried by the mainstream media or buried because not necessarily intentionally, although I would bet some of the time they are. Uh, most of the time just because there's sexier sounding news elsewhere uh, but oil spills happen a lot and the key thing here is that the uh, the 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 standard operating procedure which from a business only perspective from a money making only perspective from a for protecting share price only perspective the smart thing to do because sometimes uh, warning signs uh, can be faulty you can have what's known as a false positive right so they're like okay well we're getting some indications from our monitoring where they have monitoring I might add um, 
that there may be a weakness or there may be a stress in the pipeline. Okay, so we can send out resources, we can send out a crew, we can send out repair equipment for a problem that might go away, or we can wait. And the thing is, it's quite expensive to send out these crews. And, and now more than ever, uh, oil companies, because they're not making nearly as much money as they were only as, as much as a few years ago, are, are even more concerned about money, that, you know, spending money than they, than they used to be. And so this has created a situation where there's now a massive incentive for companies to wait it out and see what happens. Meanwhile, oil is spilling into waterways, it's spilling into wildlife areas, it's spilling into water reserves, it's you know killing all sorts of stuff. And then eventually, okay, 14 hours later, we'll send somebody out. And, oh, wait, no, I meant it was 30 minutes. So, I mean, there, the one thing is the, you know, is the understanding that there's an active and very serious incentive for oil companies to delay action and to not take action when there's danger. They have an extremely strong financial incentive. The other one is it also encourages them to lie about how often uh, these problems uh, happen. And... This, this this just sort of fights uh, the, the narrative that these things are safe, and there really isn't a way to make this sexy for the mainstream media. Like, it's one of the things that I stress about because, you know, I, do, I don't understand how to get more people's attention about this because it's one of those things where oil spills happen so often. And we hear numbers about, you know, 1,572 liters. Like, you know, if I asked you right now, you know, how much damage do you think that would cause? I don't no know. No idea, but. And would it be twice like as much as 3,000 liters? I don't know. Maybe anything over 2,000 liters has, you know, there's, a, we don't know, this This is a very serious problem. And this comes back to the thing we we're talking about, about getting those experts to be part of review panels. You know, who does know is people who work for oil companies. The problem is it takes a whistleblower. It takes somebody who's, you know, risking their entire life's career, uh, potentially any future employability and their reputation within their industry uh, to actually, you know, expose this information. And then it's because it's a scandal, not because it's an oil spill. Um, so, I mean, I... I I don't know that anyone needed convincing of this, but uh, in case you didn't get the memo, uh, oil companies are not uh, in the business of being completely honest with you. They have a giant incentive not to, and when they're not honest, uh, we are the ones that pay for it. Largely, the government are the ones that pay for these spills, and it's the company that would have to pay for the repair that that fixes the spills. And so when you have a combination of those two economic forces, uh, that means oil spills are going to keep happening. They're going to keep happening a lot and they're going to be dangerous and it's going to cause a lot of damage and you're going to pay for it. I think that's probably a good place to go to a music break, Alex. Yeah, definitely. I think the moral of the story is we need a change in policy regarding oil spills to incentivize uh, those oil companies to start fixing their their issues before they become catastrophes well don't worry because when we come back we're going to talk about uh, plastic i think plastic fuel really quickly before we go to some dnc stuff so some of those solutions but yeah pursuing oil and cleaning it up is not the solution because they have every incentive in the world to lie to you just (laughs) got to get away from it all right so for music we're going to hear from and we're back you're listening to the green majority here on ciut 89.5 fm i'm in studio i'm i should say who i am i am I'm Darren Kaster, your host here of The Green Majority, in studio with Alex Ricci, who is uh, both the tech today and my co-host today, pulling double duty. Uh, We're going to talk – oh, and I should mention, I do forget occasionally, and I try not to, the fact that we have many wonderful partners, radio partners across the country. Thank you so much if you're listening somewhere, uh, obviously in Toronto on CIUT, uh, any of our uh, podcast uh, partners, uh, rabble.ca, any of our radio partners, and of course uh, our international uh, listeners as well. 
What we're going to talk about now is uh, just really quickly before we go to some clips, um, there's some really powerful speeches from the DNC uh, that we're going to get to in just a minute. I'm, I'm very thrilled to be able to play for you because I, I was actually, I got tingly and excited when I was hearing them at home. And and, uh, and again, longtime listeners of the show will know that that does not happen easily for me. I'm very cynical about that sort of thing. So stay tuned for that. But really quickly before we get to it, I wanted to talk because we were just talking about oil and we we're just talking about how we have to get off oil. Uh, as soon as possible, uh, and that we're both, uh, Alex, very interested in technology. So I'm going to merge these two things and let you know uh, that there's been some very promising uh, tests surrounding the idea of using uh, plastic, recycled plastic, to power ship engines, uh, which, of course, could be, uh, you know, transferred to other types of uh, engines at some point but i I imagine the reason that they're they're talking about ship engines at first is that the uh these modified engines are are quite large and probably going to be difficult to minimize so i don't think we're going to be seeing these powering cars anytime soon uh but before we even get into what the exact how this exact thing works a really important thing to know and actually i don't know if you even knew this alex uh was that one of the interesting things about ship transport so all of that traffic that we do with china whenever you know we're buying things from china uh, those generally uh, 90, you know, 90 whatever percent of the time, most of the consumer goods that we buy that are from China come over on giant tankers. Most people know that in this uh, giant ports. There's huge ports in Los Angeles that are you know, massive, basically small cities of, of cargo uh, containers. Uh, one of the things that uh, has been sort of one of those ways that carbon emissions get sort of snuck out the side door is that ocean ships like the ships from China are pretty much the only form of transportation that is in no way regulated. Uh, Giant tanker ships use something called bunker fuel, uh, which is basically all of the fuel mixed together in a slurry that is too dirty to be burned by other vehicles or the leftover stuff that's purified when they do it. Uh, is all burned off on that. And so a lot of cases, this is like a giant black hole for for solving our carbon problems because one of the reasons it's omitted was that that would incredibly raise costs and basically the entire you know world right now is is exchanging something with China and all of almost all of that stuff comes over on ships. And so if there if if these giant tanker ships had to follow, you know, general even the even the emission standards that are in the average vehicle today in Canada, uh, it would be immediately uh, not cheap. And this would shut down a, a huge segment of, of global trade in the way that we currently experience it. And so because of that, basically everybody's agreed to, you know, sort of silently put these things under. So they're, they're not only not in all regulated, but because they're not regulated and they're one of the only things that aren't regulated, they use literally the dirtiest possible fuel. It's really horrifying. And of course, this has, in addition to not helping us and almost taking away the benefits of cleaner engine technology elsewhere because they're offsetting it by by being mobile you know smokestacks for the worst possible type of fuel uh but of course this is you know these ships aren't perfect and they like fuel and you're basically spreading the the dirtiest possible fuel all through marine habitats and through whales grounds and all sorts of terrible things so i wanted to i wanted to put that right out in front of this story because um, this sort of an advance is not sort of a, a minor incremental advance um, because if it could be done from waste plastic, the inputs would be very, very low, and this would allow these um, engines to essentially go from the dirtiest possible fuel to among the cleanest, uh, and governments wouldn't stand in the way because it would be also be cheap. Um, so we don't necessarily pull out every technological story each week to talk about, um, but this one could actually have pretty massive implications. Uh, I was wondering, I, I wasn't sure how much of this you, you got through, but did, uh, did, uh, any of that jump out for you, Alex? Um, I, I didn't get through this article. 
unfortunately, but uh, the headline had me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So part of the part of the idea essentially is that at certain uh, there are certain types of plastics that are uh, very difficult to uh, recycle in traditional ways and what they basically do is sort of grind it all up and it becomes a low viscosity liquid at around 70 degrees celsius uh and uh, you know and and most basically all plastic is a petroleum byproduct uh and so we're just talking about a very specialized engine to essentially burn the remainder of fuel that was removed from the the process of oil uh manufacturing because it wouldn't traditionally be useful as fuel and turning it into fuel, uh, but it allows us to go and pull stuff out of the ocean. So, you know, the the Texas-sized, I believe it's Texas-sized, uh, roughly, um, uh, amount of plastic that are in the oceans, this could some be, uh, immediately become valuable fuel, which is interesting because I think the most interesting is the, about, thing about this story, I mean, you can, oh, we won't go through all the technical stuff, um, but please do, it's, it'll be on the website. But I think the, the, the really interesting point of this um, is that, as a useful demonstration of the sort of knockoff uh, effects of innovation Um, because you've just turned a huge source of pollution into a fuel. So you've now created a financial incentive to clean up the planet. And while this type of, there's sort of two problems with this. One of them is sort of a, an ethical one, which is we shouldn't need a financial incentive to not want to live in a sea of garbage. Um, But the, but you know, that's sort of, that's, that's sort of my deep green, there i think you know i have to be practical and the the practical thing here is that the these are the types of solutions that we need to be actively searching for don't you know don't wait 10 years um for someone to find out that carbon capture and storage ultimately doesn't work or 10 years to find out that it does uh and we wasted 10 years doing other technologies we you know we need to switch but in the interim yes there are there are gaps in our ability to do stuff and where we're funding research i it should not be not a single penny should be spent trying to find ways to better use uh, the oil that we're digging up, because we already have tons of things all around us that are currently problems that could be used to solve problems. And a- another way to look at this is like all those uh, shelters and stuff in uh, impoverished countries that are, you know, being uh, r- solar showers and rain collectors being made out of garbage and landfill. Um, and these these are the types of solutions I think that are that are going to save us. Not um, you know a slightly you know a solar powered oil rigs uh, are not right. going to be the future. Yeah. Um, one thing one thing you haven't mentioned um is how this process works um so the the uh byproduct of the plastic waste they're calling plaques p l a double x which i think is a a great name can totally uh put, put some marketing dollars behind that um and the way it works is they actually convert uh residual plastic waste into a fuel that can be used by the current diesel engines on the ships. So they don't even need to really alter the engine. They just, uh, they just convert this waste into something, uh, that can be used by what's already there. Um, and the way it works is the, uh, the plastic waste is depolymerized, depolymerized, depolymerized. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, it, it gets turned into a soft wax, um, which can then be fed into the engine uh, and and burned as fuel. Yeah, and and what's, and what's sort of really frustrating. The final thing we're saying, we'll, we'll get to that uh, DNC clip. Um, is that I mean, a lot of the time these are you know this is uh, recycling technologies. Uh, the interview with the, the CEO. These aren't. This isn't Suncor. 
right? This should be Suncor. This should be Exxon that are that are investing their vast resources, their vast research budgets into these projects. But it's being left up to innovators. And while I don't want you know Exxon to be the number one company in the world, just because by this point I think I'm justified in just plain not liking them. Yeah. Uh, I think they've they've violated the public trust enough that we're allowed to to dislike them. Um, but I mean the the capacity for what they could do if they put their resources behind this sort of thing instead of you know spending you know hundreds of millions of dollars fighting climate legislation, I mean it just makes me, it makes me so frustrated and so sad because we we have these opportunities and they're really just this isn't a battle of ideologies, it's they're just being uh, intellectually lazy and they're being stubborn and they can't see that there's actually a better thing for them too and I think that's the thing that frustrates me uh, the most about that but let's skip off that let's get to some hope uh, this as I said I want to recap really quickly this was the uh, this was a climate revolution rally outside the Democratic National Convention had such uh, namesakey speakers as uh, uh, Donald, uh, Donald Glover uh, spoke and a number of other folks also Josh Fox uh, and a number of other cool people. I think we're actually going to hear from Josh Fox in just a second. So uh, the reason I wanted to play this, uh, aside from the fact that uh, that I'm alone and I'm trying to spare everyone from just listening to just my voice for an hour, uh, is that I, I generally, as I mentioned before, am pretty sort of cynical about this sort of thing. I'm not sort of a get pumped up by listening to a good speaker sort of person. You know, I'm usually the one sitting at the back sarcastically making comments. Um, but this this really got me pumped, and so I figured, you know what? If it got me pumped, uh, it's going to really pump up other people that have like tw- at least fifty percent less cynicism than me. Um, so we're going to listen to that. So uh, after a little bit of jury opening news and uh, a, a good hopeful story, we're going to keep trying to go on this up climb here, uh, Alex. So why don't we take it away with the first clip? A church for a second, and then I'll be done. I want to. This morning I was with Reverend Jesse Jackson. We were over at a church on the west side, and. Reverend Jackson got up and he said something that was interesting to me. You know, he said, when slaves change their mind, the whole world changes. Now listen to that. When slaves change their mind, the whole world changes. And then he said something that got my attention, because I have a grandmother who's turning 100 years old, who's the granddaughter of a runaway slave. And, she, and, and he said, the only slave that makes sense is a runaway slave. The only slave that makes sense is a runaway slave. You see, it's clear what to do when you find yourself on a plantation. You run away. If the plantation is on fire, great, you run away. But when the planet is on fire, there's no place to run. And when there's no place to run, you have to stand where you are and fight like hell. And as Bernie has said time and time again, many of us will be fighting on the outside and many of us will be fighting on the inside, but all of us will be fighting together. All of us will be fighting together to make sure that the second generation and the third generation and the fourth generation and the fifth generation and every generation for eternity has a planet to call home that is even better, that is even more thriving, more alive, better protected than the one that fools are endangering right now. So let's get on with the climate revolution. Let's get on with the political revolution. Let's take our country back and let's save our planet. God bless you. Give it up for me. 
Mr. Vangelis! Our next speaker is a very good friend of mine. He's in the film, How to Like All the World and Love All the Things Climate Can't Change. But that's a tiny, tiny reason why he's important. There is something that we all know very well. We know what it's like to feel alone in the face of huge opposition. We know what it's like to say, in our hearts, I don't know what to do next. You know that position of vulnerability. You know that position where you feel weak and you have nowhere to turn. And our next speaker was in that position in Utah at an oil and gas auction where the Bush administration was about to give away millions of acres of our public lands. And he decided to intervene and he decided to step in and he spent 21 months in federal prison because of his action, because of his civil disobedience. Because, his, because he obeys a higher law, not the law that tells us we have to obey the fossil fuel industry. So please give a warm welcome to my personal hero, Mr. Tim DeChristopher. Thank you. Thank you all for being here today. And thank you for being part of building this climate revolution because we know that nobody else is gonna do it for us, right? We know that nothing that's happening in the convention center downtown this week is gonna lead a climate revolution for us like the kind of revolution we need. We know that the big green groups who take up so much space in Washington, D.C., like the League of Conservation Voters and the NRDC are not gonna lead that revolution for us. We know that's gonna have to come from the ground up from all of us fighting in all of our communities and standing together against the fossil fuel industry. And we have a huge task in front of us right now. We have a massive amount of work that needs to be done to keep fossil fuels in the ground and to protect our most vulnerable and marginalized communities from the impacts of climate change that are already being felt. We don't have time to waste our efforts in the climate movement on a presidential campaign where there are no climate champions on the ballot. We can leave that work to the neoliberals that stood in the way of Bernie Sanders' campaign. We can leave that work to the staffers that will be hired by Goldman Sachs money. Of course, on that one day in November, we'll have to show up and vote against fascism. But there's a lot of days between now and then, and a lot of work that we need to be doing that work needs to be first and foremost building up grassroots movement power so that we can take down the fossil fuel industry despite the fact that both parties in our government are in bed with the oil and gas industry. We need a movement so powerful that we can beat the richest and most powerful industries in the world that are in collusion with our own government. Second, we need to be supporting the congressional candidates the state candidates and the local candidates that are climate champions that are going to stand up for our values all those people around the country who have seen the success of bernie sanders campaign and now realize that progressives people with our values actually can get elected and they stood up and they're running we need to be supporting them and we need to be building up third-party institutions 
We need to be building up the third parties so that four years from now, we're not facing this same choice between neoliberalism and outright fascism. We can't underestimate our task. We know, we know what we're facing with our political leaders, and we know what we're facing with the reality of climate change that's already being felt in heat waves and natural disasters and rising sea levels. We can't underestimate that task. If we know that we're not fighting climate change in 2009 or 1992 or any of those years when we could pretend that maybe things would be okay. We know that this is now the kind of challenge where there are gonna be hardships no matter what we do. That means that we need to hold on to one another. That means that our job is not just about reducing emissions anymore. Our job is about making sure that whatever desperate leaders are trying to hold on to their power can't pit us against one another. It means making sure that those leaders can't scapegoat certain parts of our community and that we will never sell each other out. It means making sure that those hardships that we face will be hardships that turn us towards one another with love and cooperation instead of turning against one another with fear and greed and violence. That's a huge challenge. It's not just an energy revolution or a policy revolution. That's a social revolution at its roots. We know how big that challenge is. We can't underestimate that, but we can't underestimate our own power either. We can't underestimate the power of people standing together and holding on to one another. That's what we're doing here today. That's what we're going to keep doing no matter what happens in this election. Hold on to somebody around you right now. Hold on to somebody. Hold on to somebody and let them know that you're going to hold on to them. That you're going to hold on to your values. That you're going to hold on to your future. And we are going to hold on to the power that we are building here. We are never going to let it go. Thank you for being a part of that kind of movement. All right. So that's a good thing. We're going to cut it right there. We're getting down to the last 15 minutes of the show or so. Uh, I got a little bit tingly. I got to be honest with you. I don't know if I'm just in a funny mood today, Alex, but I got a little tingly. What did you think of that real quick? Um, it. It's heartening. I mean, I, I am not as cynical as you are, so I always get stirred up by, uh, <laughs> by people speaking passionately. And, and I mean, not only were they, uh, were they passionate, but they also had a lot of good things to say. Yeah, and I think really quickly, and we're going we're gonna to come back to this, but it's something I've been saying for a while, which was, you know, the, I, I've always believed this, and I've, and I've said rapport that, we're, that we need to make this case stronger. Uh, but it's nice to hear that, that, that I'm sure they heard it from me totally. Um, <laughs> to, but to hear people making that case, which was specifically the idea that, you know, division is the enemy of climate response, and that, you know, issues like Black Lives Matter and, you know, just general racism and the, the, the absolutely accurately identified fascist uh, nature of Trump is the not just a side distraction. It is the enemy. That is this thing that will tear us apart. And the only solution is coming together. Uh, and that's about as hokey as you're ever going to hear me get on radio anyway. Uh, why don't you go ahead? If you have another final comment, go ahead. Otherwise, if you want to introduce our last music break. Sure. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll cut to the music. Um all right, and we are back. Thank you so much, Alex. And of course, that was your band versus Stefan. I uh, made it out to uh, one of your shows. Got to say it was pretty good. I enjoyed myself. 
Thanks. And you're not even paying me to say that. <laughs> uh, so we only got about uh, 12 minutes left, and, and I was going to, I really wanted to squeeze in another clip, and, and up until like a minute before the break, I was telling you we, we would, but uh, I keep underestimating my own ability to ramble. So let's not do that anymore. Uh, the, <clears throat> the rest of that. Uh, thing as I said it was an hour long it was recorded by the Young Turks team uh, there will be a link to that video on the website you can listen to several more speeches they were all very very powerful uh, including several uh, Hollywood stars uh, Susan Sarandon spoke Donny, uh, Donald Glover spoke and a few others uh, as well as as as, uh, as well as uh, activists from several different types of initiatives in fact the clip that I wanted to play which just just don't have time for uh, was talking about the argument that I was essentially just making before the break, which was that these are not separate struggles. These are all the same struggle in different forms. Um, and part of the, part of the idea of that was, um, it was just the idea of sort of coming together and that doesn't, and a lot of time when I think when people say that they, they accidentally mean, or they don't realize what they mean is we need to find other activists and, you know, and all the activists on a certain issue should be, should be working together. But no, it, it the, the true meaning here is that, you know, we can't separate these issues. You know, the, the issues of, of racism and wealth inequality and, you know, corruption and climate change are all inextricably linked. We have, we have one because of the other. Uh, and I think that they can only be dealt with uh, together. Uh, and it certainly, you know, if, if people were able to sort of bring all these issues together and you got all the people that were excited about all of these issues to realize that they're all connected. Uh, and I think the, the, the onus on that is, is disproportionate. I think it is largely, uh, you know, white North American culture, which needs to do a better job of opening their arms to first nations and, uh, issues and black lives matter, uh, people rather than the other way around, frankly. Um, but I don't want to get sidetracked into a huge discussion about that. I just thought I'd mentioned that um and please do please go go listen to the rest of it um but what we're going to do with the last few minutes uh there, there's a few other news stories and you know if we really run out of things to say i might get to the solar roadway thing uh as well um and uh if stefan was here i would have loved to also get into the uh, best arguments from the three percent of climate skeptics which i will just say very quickly was done in a very serious article by a very serious uh, journalist on the on the guardian uh made reference to that uh to a clip of what's called the chewbacca defense which if you uh, watch south park you'll know what that is basically it was like how could my opponent be guilty because chewbacca why would i mention that i'd be insane to mention that it has nothing to do with it therefore if you can't figure out how chewbacca has anything to do with my client you must acquit which essentially is the same argument they're using. It's, it's basically just like, look over here. Uh, so anyway, we may, we may come back to that because Stefan and I know Stefan and I can have a little bit of fun with that. But all the news stories will, of course, be linked on the show as always uh, on the website, which you can check out at greenmajority.ca, which we can also uh, learn more about us. And Stefan, some point uh, over the weekend or maybe Monday, we'll be relaunching our site uh, as well with a new site. It's going to be a little sparklier, a little bit easier to navigate and a few better photos uh, as well. There will also be some more information and, uh, and a few better ways to contact us as well. So check out greenmajority.ca and then also check it again on next week because you'll have something completely different you find when you go to greenmajority.ca next week but with our last nine minutes alex um there was an article somebody sent me and i gotta be honest with you um i i really i i i, I found it difficult to get through and the reason i found it difficult to get through and and this may i offend may be a strong word but rub some of our listeners the wrong way um is just that i just can't stand how it's written <laughs> I like what they said a lot, en enough that I want to talk about it with you, um, but I just can't stand how it's written. I think it's uh, anyway. It's it's not to my taste. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go into it too much. It's a little bit fluffy for me, uh, to, to put it mildly. But that being said, um, because the, I do respect the person who sent it to me, I did 
do my best to at least skim through it uh, without rolling my eyes too hard. And what I found was that, that you know, in, in, or, in and around what I thought was some excessively and, and needlessly flowery language, um, some really interesting ideas. And so what the essentially what the uh, thing is uh, is around and you'll get the sense if you're similar to me, you'll get the sense of what I disliked about it immediately from the title, uh, which was it was seven signs you may be a rainbow warrior. Uh, and yeah, in and amongst uh, some of this other stuff, some of the ideas is there are basically seven sort of traits that they identify as being the definition of the rainbow warrior or whatever. I, I don't think that's particularly important. The, the, the way I want to talk about this is that here are seven things that I think are uh, maybe six. One of them is kind of half you know, halfway there, but, but seven, six and a half things at the very least, which I think were really useful. Uh, and, uh, it's just as far as, uh, you know, things, things to think about and to try and do and, and enact in your daily life as a bit of self-improvement. Uh, and everybody can improve in all of these areas. And one, one of them was today was the idea of the, not just the idea, the idea of ecocentric thinking, uh, or the idea of egocentric thin- thinking, but that the idea that these are in perfect conflict, uh, and that this is essentially the the difference between uh, sort of you know thinking uh, thinking about uh, yourself as a part of a network with a reciprocal uh, relationship uh, and thinking about uh, yourself and so you know you could say that these are two opposing viewpoints um, but uh, you could also um, see that one is in direct conflict with the other and not only that but also that one is uh, just decidedly better than the other i mean we can uh we can talk about um the idea that uh these uh, the that the idea of being uh, ecocentric is in fact actually just demonstrably worse when you when you partner up and team up uh you know i i would cite um human civilization as exhibit one uh on this idea that you know working together has better results than individualism. Uh, I think now we have enough technology that people can be tricked into thinking that they can be independent, but that's because they don't realize that they don't all invent their own technology and power all the power building. So just that sort of single point, that initial uh, idea that, you know, it is, it is better for you. It will be happier. And it is also better for everyone. If we um, think of ourselves as other people's self-interest as being in our self-interest. Uh, the second point on that was the uh, was what they call a spiritual chameleon, and what they mean by that um, is the idea that you can sort of vary your thinking to match uh, to at least a le- not to match, not to change your thinking, but at least to uh, I think what it's trying to get at essentially was the idea of uh, sort of empathy for other points of view. Um, and this is something that I think was, is a, of a particular issue uh, right now, and I think I'll, I'll, I'll get Alex to maybe jump in on this one as well, which is the idea that you know we live in, in Toronto, we live in what's been called several times the most multicultural city in, uh, in the world. It certainly has uh, continued to be among the most multicultural cities in the world. Uh, and this is in contrast to other places, uh, many American cities, where they do have a lot of people from other cultures, but it's, uh, it's more of a assimilation versus the melting pot idea. And I think what people in Toronto are very good at, and I think the reason we've been successful as a multicultural city, is the idea to not just be tolerant of other cultures, but to a certain degree, celebrate them. And that's something that as a Torontonian, I take as with a certain amount of pride. And that's certainly not, of course, to disparage uh, anybody else. But that's, at least for me personally, um, a particular point of uh, pride. I was wondering if you had a comment on on either of the first two points, Alex. Um, Well, I do think that the the second point uh, about being a spiritual chame- chameleon calls for like a real acceptance and understanding of of other uh, cultures and races and 
religions. And, and I mean, acceptance is is great, and like that's something that we are uh, lucky enough to to exhibit uh, pretty regularly in Toronto. But real understanding, I, in my in my personal experience, I feel like there's a lot of acceptance, but not a lot of real effort to to really understand the cultural differences between yourself and 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 other people. And I think that um, that's where that's where empathy. Uh, for for other cultures and and like change uh, for uh, for the better can can come is is in that understanding and and I think that this point is is calling for something beyond what we have uh, already in Toronto. Yeah, and I think it's the difference. You know, we talk about. Um, I mean, even just talking about you know coming back to Black Lives Matter for a little bit. There's there's a di- there's a difference between well, not to get really into it, but to use that as a reference point. Um, you know, there's a huge difference between tolerance and acceptance and support. Right, that's sort of a, a gradient on your way up. And a lot of the a lot of the problems that uh, we're having by we, I mean humans, um, is to getting even to that first notch is getting to tolerance. Um, so the 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 metaphor, the example that I would use is the idea of you know someone that maybe that's fallen on the street um you know people who aren't tolerant would walk by that person decide they don't like them and kick them right tolerance is walking by without kicking them uh acceptance is helping them up right and so there's a there's a really big difference between you know simply allowing someone else to exist in peace uh, and you know not going out, out of your way to make their life miserable or harming them uh and actively being a part of the community and i think you know, Toronto has done, and Toronto, North American, you know, North America, in to varying degrees, depending on where you are, in general, has come a long way as far as that tolerance thing. Um, sadly, there's still a lot of intolerance. Um, but I also would like to point out, and I think it was the point of this thing for me, was that tolerance is a pretty freaking low bar. Walking by someone, you know, who's fallen, and simply being congratulated for not kicking them again and bypassing them by, is a pretty low bar. Uh, and I think we have to. We have to realize, you know, A, just how absolutely despicable people that won't even walk by, won't, won't even be tolerant uh, of someone, you know, of just not harming, going out of the way to harm someone who's different from them. Um, but also just it's pretty despicable just to walk by, too. And that, that tolerance is, well, it is the minimum uh, to be acceptable in, in our culture is, is, I think, a pretty pathetic bar and that we need to actively strive for more. And that sort of saying, well, if you're tolerant, that's good enough, uh, isn't good enough for me anyway. Right. I, al- I also think um, there's a certain level of uh, like if you're if you're to be a spiritual chameleon, you also have to be able to shed your your own culture uh race or whatever and just be a person uh because like a lot of uh, well every culture has its has its uh sort of downfalls as well and and it's built-in intolerances of other people and 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 part of being a chameleon is not being any one particular color or fitting into one particular category so i think i think they might be calling for a bit of a um you can still celebrate the history and the tradition, but maybe not uh, not living uh, within a certain culture uh, in the in the present. 
All right, we'll have to tie it off there. Please check out the website for all those show notes. Uh, and if you're not a sort of person that feels the same way about that sort of thing, maybe you could uh, practice some acceptance instead of tolerance and actually get through the article, even though uh, you may not like its phrasing. And for those of you that like that sort of thing, you're going to really like this article. That's it for the Green Majority this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you're uh, listening on the podcast, we'll be right back with the bonus show. Thanks for listening to the Green Majority. Have a good green week, folks, and we'll see you all real soon. That was the regular broadcast this week, and we're going to get now into the bonus show. As I mentioned earlier, as I teased earlier, we do uh, we did end up having a sort of last-minute surprise guest, uh, someone who's going to be, I hope, uh, joining, because uh, I enjoyed having her with us here today, going to be joining us again in the future as well. Uh, and we get to some of the stories that we didn't get to in the main show, including uh, some talk about cars. So we talk about the Zipcar story and the solar roadway story, uh, and I, as usual, uh, demagogue a little bit. I brought my soapbox again. Enjoy the show, and of course, a quick reminder, if you can, are willing and are able. We would very much appreciate your support. You can go right now to greenmajority.ca or to Patreon and become a member for as little as a dollar a month. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash greenmajority. Enjoy the bonus show. This is the bonus show for July. Oh man, it's the end of July. Wow. It's July 29th. You're live in the studio. You may be listening on the podcast up to a couple weeks later. So if you are listening late, the best way to get the show is directly from the Green Majority website, which is greenmajority.ca. But I am uh, joined today, in addition to Alex uh, joining us as well uh, for today's bonus show, we have a surprise guest, uh, Shia Tajvidi. (laughs) Hello. Um, And uh, we actually only met very recently, and I invited you to come in and join us, and then we had some empty chairs, so I suckered you into coming into the into the studio so why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit hello um yeah so my name is shia um i am uh, a journalist and multimedia producer and i've been i guess focusing on the environment um and indigenous struggles for the last five six years or so so i'm very happy to join you today welcome to the program shia thank you so much uh so i believe uh, we're going to talk a little bit about cars did you want to get us started off on which one of those you wanted to start with alex sure yeah we're going to talk about car sharing first Um, And the main uh, premise of the article is exploring whether Car2Go, which is uh, the one-way car-sharing service that we have here in Toronto, um, whether that in the States um, can help cut down on the uh, economic and environmental costs of of owning cars. Uh, 90% of Americans own cars, according to this article. Um, Tons of traffic jams, tons of pollution. Uh, the economic cost is 124 billion. Obviously, no mention of the environmental cost because we don't really know. It's they, it's they, very high. That would be a two-year study, exactly, yeah. <laughs> to um, find out the full uh, full cost accounting on that one. Yeah. So um, the findings. Uh, I don't know if you can jump in here, Darren, uh, about the findings of the uh, of the Cartago. Study. Yeah, so they um so I be- I believe it was it was at 19 million. Can you just give me the number? Uh the amount of cars they thought they'd take off the road? Um 28,000 28, uh, private cars off the road in 3 years. Right. Okay, so 28,000. Yeah. So the uh they had 19 million. That might that, that might have been a little high. Uh so yeah, I mean the idea here is that the the really big takeaways was that uh it might be counterintuitive to to some people, but the basic idea was that you know, people own cars because ownership of a car was the only option. So it seemed very natural if you need to drive and many people, you know, think they do or legitimately do. And it's, it's my opinion. And I think I could back it up if pressed with facts uh, and studies that, you know, a lot of people think they need a car and really they're just being lazy or they don't know about the alternatives or, you know, this or that. Uh, but the idea is that once you, the, I think the big takeaway is that once you 
give people an alternative, which is, okay, well, I don't need to own a car because I can borrow a car whenever I need it. It's like having a really nice uh, friend who lives nearby who has 14 cars and doesn't mind if you borrow one, right? Uh, you know, it's kind of like that, but on a huge scale. Uh, the, the kind of idea here is that the really, or the really interesting takeaway from this was that people actually are driving significantly less. And it's not because of the hassle of having to go and get the car. It's because if it's not just sort of sitting there, like it's not your default option, uh, you're like, well, do I really need it? I'm just going to the store, you know, get some milk, whatever. And so there's sort of two benefits here. I mean, there's the immediate and obvious and measurable benefit of reducing carbon emissions. Uh, but it also has a knockoff benefit of sort of getting people to think about, do do I really need to be in a car? And, and I think this is less impactful in uh, Canada to some degree, depending on where you live, at least in the major cities, uh, but especially in the U.S., uh, where car driving is like... I was going to say owning a wristwatch. Maybe I'll say owning a wristwatch in the like 80s, uh, where it's just it's just sort of a given. And and I think that's really where is for, for the cultural uh, aspects of car sh- ride sharing uh, should not be underestimated. And and depending on where you are, this could in fact have a huge benefit. I mean, you may end up you know year one somebody drives a little less. Year two, somebody gets rid of their other car, uh, you know, and gets a second membership for their spouse. Uh, year three, maybe they buy a bike, right? So this has these are sort of the Im- initial impacts, but I think they could be uh, much more ongoing. Did you want to uh, say something, Cheyenne? It could definitely have a ripple effect, just like you were alluding to. And also in terms of numbers, like this article mentions that it actually took close to 30,000 privately owned cars off the roads. So you can imagine in like big metropolises how this could really have an impact. You were saying that earlier. Um even in Canada, I feel like it would it would make it would be a departure from the way that you know people <laughs> use their vehicles. Yeah, today. and I think yeah. I think ultimately, like, like my my perspective is always one of well, not not always, but it's frequently one of public policy. And so, I mean, what I see here is that I mean, as you get you know more and more of these options where actually owning the vehicle is less and less of a requirement uh, i think it becomes more palpable to sort of discuss you know policy public policy issues that maybe would you know get this this little ball that's started to roll a little bit and start tilting tilting the ground a little so it rolls a little faster so i mean you could uh, start uh, imposing a, uh, a modest tax on private vehicle ownership and put that money earmarked directly into a tax incentive discount for a car for ride sharing. Right? There's little th- little policy things you can do to nudge that along. Uh, but I don't think it's entirely out of the question. But I, you know, maybe I'm being pie in the sky again. You guys tell me uh, that to say that you know I could foresee in the very near future. I, I would think it would be possible if 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 people were motivated and politicians were motivated to do it that within 10 years in a city like Toronto, for instance, uh, to have it so that the only vehicles on the road are transport vehicles, uh, AI driven cabs and rideshare cars, no privately owned vehicles whatsoever. Uh, I, I don't think that's crazy. Uh, now, of course I am someone who does not have a driver's license, so maybe mm-hmm. I'm being nuts. What do you guys think? I'm a, I'm a car owner, so I can offer a bit of a different perspective. Um, I, I'm a car owner because uh, because I'm a musician and I need to carry a whole lot of stuff all the time, um, I so I have a minivan and I I could never I could never really get away with uh, a, a little smart car unless each one of my bandmates has their own smart car and we're all driving in a in a little convoy with our all of our gear. So what what if they had like the name of your band and like each car had one letter from the name and then your your AI driven smart cars were all going down the road and it like spelled out your band name that would be pretty cool. That sounds <laughs> that sounds really cool. And all it needs fi- is good marketing. There's five it. members and uh, and five letters in our band name, so that could right? actually work. Like but but then uh, what what uh, what company that owns the cars is going to let us put our band name on uh, on a car that we don't actually own? 
That's my question. Holographic paint. <laughs> I have an answer for everything. Um, so, so I think that I think that it's not really reasonable to think that we're going to take all of the privately owned cars off the road, especially like in the city. I like I, as I said, I'm a car owner, but I pretty much don't use my car unless I'm leaving the city or carrying gear to a show. That those are the only times. Otherwise, it just stays parked right up front of my house, and I walk everywhere. I take the subway. I bike most 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 places if i'm going any distance um and and it seems crazy to me that anybody would want to drive in in the city if they don't have to Mm. because it's going to take them longer to get anywhere and like the difference between being active uh like having to be aware of what you're doing and like being careful trying not to kill any of the other people trying to use the road uh it it seems crazy that anybody would want to drive but there are there are circumstances where uh, where you need to have a private vehicle, and and this this study applies to many many people. Doesn't apply to everyone, but I think that uh, with car to go especially, um, it's going to make a huge difference for uh, the environmental impact of, of cars, especially in cities. Shia. And also, I mean, for sure, private ownership, like there's there's so much room for this to be challenged and to to keep targeting it or, you know, making it less and less. But I think we really have to remember the limitations of public transit, you know, as it stands. So without putting that money into building really good transit systems, it would make the life of a lot of people not in the city core significantly more difficult. So yes to absolutely like targeting private ownership of cars, but we really need to invest in getting people into the city much easier, you know? You just gave me another idea, Shia. Thank you. Transit cool. bond. Transit bond. Transit bonds, like war bonds, right? It's an, it's an investment you would make where you'd get your money back and essentially you're lending the government. This is exactly how it worked during war bonds. Uh, people in Canada, guests we've had on the show have talked about there's there's actually right now a green bonds mm-hmm. uh, where you give your uh, money and the idea is that you have a guaranteed rate of return but you have to leave your money there for a certain number of years, right? So sometimes it's five or 10 or 15 years uh, but you have a guarantee, government-backed guaranteed return rate uh, and they use that money to build, to work on a specific project. So during World War II, obviously, that was building guns and bombs and planes. Uh, but it's since that concept has since been applied to many other areas. And I don't know. I think we could have a, a like a GTA or a, a Metro Toronto area. Um, actually, no, probably GTA. We'd have to we'd have to go pretty far out to, to raise enough money. But some sort of transit bond, right, where you lend the government money, you get a guaranteed rate of return. They use that money to build that infrastructure. And we say, OK, the, the project's going to be completed within 10 years. And in 10 years, you then get, you know, maybe your payback is you get your initial investment back. But instead of making a guaranteed re- uh, return on investment, you get like five years free unlimited transit travel. Hmm. Right. So I don't know. I'm just saying there's ideas. Cool is, idea. I like it. Actually, on on that idea, is there do you know if there's any conversation around like solutions like this in this in the city of Toronto? Nobody asks me. You know. <laughs> if they if they if they asked me more often, they'd have more ideas like this. No, I, the, people people do put forward ideas like this, and the the trouble is they frequently get shot down. Um, frankly, just by short sighted thinking. So I mean, with the with the network we have with the show and the number of guests that I've had on, I mean there there's a there's probably been a, you know a thousand hundred million dollar ideas expressed on this show, and people go out and you know maybe not all of them are good, but some of them are probably good, and and they don't go anywhere. And I think it's I think it's because you know to some degree a you know, the politicians are only concerned about their short term, justifiably to some degree. Um, 
And then in some case, I think people just politically have been so beaten down. They're like, yeah, that's a good idea, but politicians are corrupt. They'll never do it. And so nobody actually fights for this stuff. And uh, I don't know. That's why the sort of the point of this show is to try and get people riled up in a good way, like riled up to, 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 to do stuff. Cause a lot of the, a lot of the time, I think it's just, we've, we've just been beaten into submission that, you know, the, the system is corrupt and we can't, you know, we'll, we'll just get some other corrupt person in its place. And I don't know. I think, I think we've really had the optimism beaten out of us. Um, anything more we want to say about uh, our car to go or, or transit bonds or shall we go on to solar roadways? Yeah, let's, let's talk about solar roadways. So France is, uh, is doing a pilot project where they cover, um, 600 miles of road with photovoltaic panels. Um, and so what these panels do is, uh, they're just like tiny eight millimeter thick, uh, solar panels that sit right on the road and can be driven on, uh, with regular, according to this article, regular traffic, uh, including six axle trucks. Um, so, uh, the idea is traffic, uh, traffic goes over this road all day. The road is otherwise uh, kind of wasted space in that in that it doesn't it doesn't do anything other than degrade and and have to be replaced and uh, and the idea is to turn some of this into uh, energy generating space. So um, what they're what they're saying in this article is a 14 foot section of of solar roadway is projected to generate enough electricity for a single French household a kilometer. Uh, of road should generate enough for a community of 5,000 people and they're planning on 600 miles so that's uh, that's that's a lot of uh, potential energy generated by a fairly small small amount you can kind of think about the possibility of scaling up and being able to generate enough power for the country on just their their major highways so let's. Uh, there's some downsides. Nobody's going to be surprised that I have some downsides. But let's talk about upsides first. Uh, one of the things that jumps out at me uh, for this was that uh, it's a very visible uh, commitment to renewable energy, and I think it has a knockoff benefit aside from the immediate uh, energy benefit. Obviously, this is a uh, a way to put solar panels in places that. Uh, would normally be, you know, undevelopable, right? So if you have roads running through the middle of a small township, you can't put solar panels down the middle of the road, but you, apparently you can put them in the road, right? And so this this opens up vast new areas uh, of places that can be solar roadway. One of the one of the numbers I remember from one of my uh, first year courses in. Um, uh, urban studies was just a number which sort of, I guess, intuitively looks sense. And if you do a thing, you can do it now, maybe pause the program or open your Google Maps and go to Toronto and just sort of zoom out to like a mid-level and just look at what you're looking at. And what you'll see if you sort of just identify uh, just like mentally with your mind, the amount of space that roads take up. So this number still to this day seems shockingly high to me, but I, I did I did double check it at the time, and apparently it's fairly accurate if I'm remembering it correctly, which is that somewhere in and around half of all space in an urban area is roadway, like almost half. Wow. Oh, sorry, uh, half of public space. So that's sorry, okay. That's what yes, that was the thing that that clicked. Yes, because it's not literally half of the space, but half of the public space mm. is roadways, right? And so when we're talking about, and we had a long conversation, I won't go in, uh, into it again now, but last week uh, where Deirdre and I were talking about Pokemon Go and people reclaiming sort of public space in a way, well, half of that, half of it, all of it is dedicated to, to cars. And uh, so I think that along with this idea of like trying to get road uh, things off the road and all that sort of stuff, like we have a, I, I object to cars on many levels. One of the reasons I object to them is that like the amount of public space we have to give up, the amount of community space that we have to give up that could be done for so many other things that could have so many better benefits than simply moving people through it. 
Um, I, it just seems to me to be a vast waste of space. Uh, but also just the idea of getting people out and seeing the renewable energy and, and literally seeing it integrated into the system. I think there could be vast psychological and, and uh, transformative, you know, thinking-based things around, oh, well, okay, well, if, the, if we, well, this is a futuristic society, well, if we could do this, what else, else could we do? And I, th- I think there's something to be said for extremely public um, displays of technology uh, because I think it gets people excited. I mean, it gets people excited. The last time we had excitement, this sort of excitement that I think that this sort of a project on a vast scale being implemented would be, would be, you know, getting into the range of, you know, all the, the fervor and then, then the American national pride about, you know, sending somebody to the moon. I mean, these, these are the types of projects, these world transforming projects that, that capture people's attention and, and gets them dreaming. Oh, if we could do this, what else could we do? Uh, and I think we need a little bit of that. Uh, anything else on that from, from you? Well, I should say anything else. Anything other than from me on the upsides? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, uh, a potential downside, I mean, they, they don't really talk about it, is the, the cost of the project. It's expected to generate $440 million for the, uh, of, of energy that they'll sell to the grid, which that's not insignificant. That, sound, that sounds like a, great, uh, like a great benefit. That's a lot of easy-bake ovens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but they don't talk about how much the project is going to cost, whether it's uh, less than $440 million, whether whether this stuff is as cheap as, uh, as an average solar panel or whether it's much, much more expensive. Um, and sort of what the scalability is uh, of this project, um, if it if it's cost cost effective or not. Yeah, just usually when it comes to solar, the usual story is it's going to it it, it will be it will pay back and it will pay back very well somewhere between twenty and forty years after you build it. Um, so I, I I don't know anything about this particular project, uh, and of course those numbers are much lower these days, but. Uh, I, I think it's a fairly safe assumption that the project will cost more than $400 million to build, uh, probably if I had to guess somewhere around $550 million to build, um, you know, just off the cuff uh, impression uh, from what I know about solar technology. Uh, but I would bet that, you know, in 10 to 15 to 20 years, you will see all of that money back and more, uh, all money which would have otherwise been spent burning fossil fuels. So I, w- so I was actually wrong. I just reread the, uh, the article and it's, it looks like 440 million is the cost of the project. Ah. Uh, they, they're saying that they're going to uh, have progressive tax increases on fossil fuels, which will generate 440 million for green energy initiatives such as this. Ah, okay. All right. So that makes that makes a little more sense. Yeah. I guess then the question is how much energy will this project actually generate? Mm-hmm. I, at which they kind of answer. It it seems like a great project and and uh as a pilot I'm super excited to see what comes next. Yeah. Well, the French economy isn't so strong right now that they can be, you know, pouring vast sums of money into things just because they feel like it. So yeah, I, this is definitely going to be net benefit, a net positive if they're doing it. Uh, the question, yeah, the very, the very apt question you asked is how much, uh, which I think matters, but also in a way doesn't matter as long as it's net positive, build it. <laughs> so the only other, uh, I have, well, rather I would say I have, I have one more negative that we haven't sort of really gotten into aside from the full cost accounting. And there's a number of things there. We won't spend an, an hour talking about that. We won't even spend another minute talking about it. Cause there's, there's a number of full cost accounting type questions around how much carbon will be burned to build this stuff. What is the actual net benefit of the carbon? Yada, yada, yada. Uh, there's one other one though, that, that we haven't uh, mentioned or implied yet, but I want to see if Shia has anything further on that. No. Okay. So my net, uh, my next one would be 
my only concern around this too would be is that I was told a, 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 a very brief anecdote. This is the sort of thing you get in the in the after show is is weird tangents. Uh, so I uh, I was uh, in a previous life, uh, previous version of this life. I was married, and when I was married, uh, I'm no longer. But uh, I remember um, my wife at the time telling me a story about uh, her family. Her family, uh, part of her family, is from Argentina, and they at some point had lost part of her family's here, part of her family's in Argentina, and they uh, they uh, the, her father had lost contact with with his mother, so my my ex wife's grandmother. Uh, for six months. And so eventually the point they got so worried, nobody, they didn't know anyone around the town or they weren't able to get a hold of anyone around the town who'd be able to go and check on her. So eventually her father flew to Argentina to, to, to check on the grandmother. Uh, and so there's, there's weird distorted sort of messages coming back and it wasn't really clear. The phone lines aren't great. Uh, even when they reached like some neighbors, it was re- really hard to tell what was going on. And so the, the information that they got sort of as he was going was that someone had stolen the phone line. And so we're here in, you know, technological North America. So we're thinking, oh, somebody hacked it. No, no, no. Uh, copper is so valuable there that they bury the phone lines instead of putting them up on posts because it's so poor in large parts of the country that people will steal it and sell the raw materials. This happens all the time. They're stripping stuff. So someone had literally gone to her house, clipped the connection, and dug up something like a kilometer or two kilometers under the ground, like you know, several feet under the ground for kilometers, just to steal the copper wiring on the phone line. Someone had literally physically stolen the phone line. And I'm sure you've guessed by this point where I'm going with this story was that I'm concerned about, uh, you know, something as technologically valuable as a solar panel. I mean, what are you going to have police every 40 feet? Um, These are extremely high tech, you know, well, relatively speaking, high tech equipment, huge amount of cost, a lot of resources. Um, I I have a bit of a security concern. I'm not usually a security hawk, as anyone knows, but I don't know. Do do you think that's a legitimate? Am I I out on on a limb here? Is that a legitimate concern? Would you be worried about that? Well, if cars are driving over it all the time, it's going to be pretty hard to steal. Eh, they dug up a phone line, right, <laughs> from three feet underground for a kilometer. I don't know. Well, that, no, I definitely, know. that definitely, that's a, a concern, and I, I would hope that they would have something, uh, some sort of plan to to build it into the pa- the pavement, pave over the edges, something to keep it in place. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure. I mean, it's a it's a valid concern, but that seems like something that they would have thought of. It's definitely a valid concern and also a very interesting story. I also hope the grandmother was okay. The grandmother was ultimately fine, okay. yes. Thank you. Um, but I think that, um, I mean, in, in your story, like digging up the copper, it's it's a lot more malleable, I suppose, and a lot maybe easier to, to put it to use. Whereas I feel like these um, solar roads, you need, I think, more specialized knowledge to then, to after you dig them up, to then go and... What would you do with them alternately? You strip it for parts. Like people yeah. just t- tear it down to its base components, rip all the wires out, sell the glass, Dep- uh, depending on how poor you are. For sure. Yeah. yeah. It, it, might, it might certainly be something to consider. Um, it wasn't, admittedly, it wasn't the first thing that I thought of when we were discussing this article, but you raised a really interesting uh, angle to it. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, so, but I should, I should be clear that I don't think this is an argument against the technology. I think it mm-hmm. just allows me a perfect uh, thing to bring out one of my other soapboxes, which is wealth inequality. Wouldn't have that problem if people weren't so damn poor. One percent. Yes. <coughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, I think that's a side issue. But I just, yeah, it's just, it, one of those things that is sort of that did occur to me. It was like, you know. Or even, I mean, even just vandals. I mean, people do stupid things all the time. Somebody, some jokers uh, a year ago stole one of the signs from Auschwitz and they ended up finding like one of the signs over the gates at the, at, at Auschwitz in Germany. And it was just like a bunch of teenagers who ended up, they're probably going to be in prison for the rest of their lives. But 
Uh, but it's, yeah, people, I just, you know, as much as I, as much optimism I, as I have for humans as a species, I also have a lot of skepticism in our current state, just because there's so much, you know, we, we have yet to become, you know, our, our bright shining Star Trek future yet. And, uh, and knowing humans as they are now, I have some skepticism. <laughs> but but I suppose there's something to be said. I mean, if we're in an era where people are like solar roads are so prevalent that the act of then digging them up or, you know, s- taking them apart is something to, to think about. I feel like we're in an altogether different, you know, we're at a far more advanced place than we are now. Like it still seems while the conversation is certainly out there and we're talking about solar as a solution getting cheaper um, we're, we're still not to the point where this is so widespread that we're even having those other conversations around it. So I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of open to being at that point where we think <laughs> we're, we're at the solutions, you know? Um, I, so I feel like I feel like this is your first time on the show and you're being polite. And what you meant to say was let's cross that bridge when we get to it. <laughs> Maybe, but, let's, but let's, let's like let's implement these solutions first. You know, like let's let's get to the point where we can really. Uh, see their the consequences that we haven't even thought about yet on a wide scale you know like i feel like there's still so much more fight left mm. i mean yes solutions are emerging and we're we're living in exciting times even though we're still adamantly fighting fossil fuels and all that but let's uh let's let's make this more of a daily reality first i feel yeah there's what there's one thing which uh i'm i'm being super nostalgic today but i remember my old english classes uh getting into the idea of sort of uh uh not nihilism uh catcher in the rye what's the word for mm. Um, Somebody help me. Well, uh, when you say a, a particular, just... a, a particular ph- philosophical uh, perspective that's uh, used as a literary a literary device in the in the book Catcher in the Rye. Anyway, uh, existentialism. So the idea of an existential mm-hmm. threat and uh, how uh, the best way to motivate someone is to is to create some sort of existential threat. So uh, on Earth, it was the idea of you know the other, and so this would be other countries and you know, the best way to mobilize people. And that's why war is such an effective. Uh, way to get people to vote the rights away or give corporations power, right? It's that idea that there's a bigger threat out there that you should be more concerned about. And it's a, it's a, it's a very terrible way, but a very effective way to sort of bring people on board with whatever you want to do. And the idea that one of the big challenges with uh, climate change is that there's no sort of tangible existential threat that's driving us together because it's not like a thing we can attack it's not it's it's so ethereal that it's it it's it it's hard to sort of crystallize as an existential threat to then mobilize people to to get together but what we're seeing you know if we, whether we want to talk about climate change or or the pollution or we want to go more political and talk about you know the scary you know noises that Russia and China have been beginning to make and Donald Trump don't even get me started this week we're not even going to go there but one of the things i think we forget to do is that you know there's that dark side of that which is that we're on a bit of a knife edge you know with all the terrorism and everything else and we could go on and on and on we're on a bit of a knife edge one way yeah to, to plunge into the void but on the other hand it's that idea that that all this darkness and all this you know scary stuff and all this hatred and all this fighting and all this un you know, just call it shall we be anticlimactic and call it antisocial behavior um I think also has I think there there could be a possibility there that this could be the existential t- threat that that finally pushes us the other way. I think we have just about as about as much uh, likelihood as much chance of this being the thing that finally gets you know that finally drives some sort of global unity uh, as much as it does to plunge us down the the depths of darkness and uh, I think we could maybe uh, meditate on that a little bit this week as this could, this could be the thing that mobilizes the kind of change that we need is maybe we did need to be pushed to the cliff edge before we decided to push back. Climate change being the thing that changes everything? You got it. <laughs> <laughs> nice little plug there. Um, yeah. 
<laughs> Final comments? It's been a fun week. Thanks, Alex. <laughs> and thank you much, uh, so much for joining us as well, uh, Shina. Do you have a last comment to make? I mean, not to dip back into the conversation extensively, but I don't know. I, I don't know that it's not... Um, that it's it's intangible. I think it taps into what you had said earlier that there's just so much. Um, it's it's such a beast of an issue, and I think people feel the weight of it without maybe seeing the clear solutions discussed as much. Um, but I think that actually there's there's more and more awareness to it. And I, I would personally, I mean, as far as journalism goes, be really interested in doing the kind of like solutions-based journalism or hearing more of these solutions put in our faces, discussing them on these podcasts, like the Read Majority, and yeah, discuss these solar roads that are going to go up, you know? So to combat the, um, the uh, what, what do we do about it mentality versus the lack of awareness, I suppose. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Great uh, great having you uh, here, and we hope to hear from you again uh, coming back to join us. But I think that's about it. We uh, see, as we always managed to, we didn't think we had anything to say, and we're getting up on 28 minutes. So wow. uh, thank you to anyone who stuck all the way through to the end. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening to the Green Majority Podcast. Mm-hmm.